Ben Abbott was part of a team of researchers from BYU that recently delivered a dire report about the future of the Great Salt Lake. The report said unless conditions change, within five years the lake could disappear. That was the word they used, disappear. Abbott is a Latter-day Saint, and he was reminded recently that the brand of his religion is faith plus works. Governor Spencer Cox, also LDS, had been widely mocked when he asked Utahns last June to pray for rain. But Abbott told us this week the doctrines of his church add a twist to divine intervention. If people don't do all it is in their power to get water back into that lake, he said, all of those prayers will be in vain. Today in Radio West, we're talking about the relationship between the LDS Church and the lake and what they should or could do to help save it. Join us after this. Great Salt Lake has reached a record low. With drought, climate change, and population growth, how can Utah better support its critical body of water? KUER is a member of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. It's a group of news and nonprofit organizations engaging and informing the public about the crisis facing Great Salt Lake. We're also focused on solutions journalism. That means we're not just talking about the problem. We're also asking what can be done before it's too late. Learn more at greatsaltlakenews.org. In the spring of 1983, when the mountain snowpack gave way after an early season heat wave, cities in the path of all this runoff saw the worst flooding in Utah's history. The mudslides and surging water displaced thousands. It caused a couple hundred million dollars in damage. Ted Wilson was the mayor of Salt Lake City at the time, and he saw the water coming. My problem at that moment was to figure out how to deal with that. Getting the water down the street without flooding on the sides into the streets. So I started thinking about what I could do to get the people I needed. And then it hit me that people are out in church. And I'd call a Mormon church first because it got the most people. And they do good things on their holy days. And in the holy days of Sunday for the Mormon church and other Christian religions, puts them in a place where I could get to them and call them and get them on the street where they could really practice religion, in my opinion. I had an association with Gordon B. Hinckley, the president of Mormon Church, wonderful man. His daughter was a student of mine when I taught at Skyline High School. And I said, President Hinckley, I need you to contact your bishops and see if we could get the people down to the street level. He said, well, Ted, that's a big thing to be asking on a Sunday. And I said, I really need them, President. And, you know, if you can't do it, I surely understand. No one will ever know of our call. He says, well, I don't know. I said, well, I, <laughs> one other thing, you've got an interest in it, huh? and that is the water would probably go down into your basement where your computers are at the church office building. He said, oh, now I do have a reason to think about it. <laughs> he said, well, the ox is in the mire, which is the old biblical term 
for working on Sunday if you have to. And it's a big part of why 10,000 people went up on the street. So in every church, they were stopping their ceremonies in one way or another or finishing up soon because the preacher and the leader had gone to the people and said, we've got a big problem downtown. Salt Lake's going to be flooded. Go on down, brothers and sisters. We're going to do our job. People started to show up on the street. They had suits on or church-going dresses. I realized we're going to get a good crowd of people down there. People saw it as an emergency. And the fire department put its leading firefighters along the route to be supervisors. And they said, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a truck over here. You see the sand? We'd like a few of you to go over and fill bags, another group to pass the bags to the point on the road where we need it. We're going to have a three-bag height, and that'll make us a good flood barrier. And we started bringing those people over, and pretty soon there were more and more and more. So they started passing what they're supposed to do out to the people around them. So they became the teacher. And they were certainly the cheerleaders when the water finally flowed in full. But we had beat it to the punch, and we were ready for it. And the spirit of Salt Lake was tied up in a nice bow and tightened, and it helped us survive it. We saw that outpouring of people and solving a problem 40 years ago. And you know, it might just work today as we look at that poor, dying Great Salt Lake that needs water. You know, we're going to get bad stuff in the air from dust. We're going to have a lot of problems. And I've thought about it from time to time, and I thought, I wonder if we could just get on the phone and call the president of the church and tell him that we got a problem out there. wouldn't work that way. But I do believe that the Mormon church has an unusual resource. They have people, and they are very good at organizing. And I've thought over time, what could they do now in this new situation of too little water. It's a different problem and maybe more difficult than the question of too much water. And I don't have a precise answer to it personally, but I do know if the Mormon Church can be contacted and described in a way that they agree to, that they would be equally anxious to serve their city and their state and the people of the state. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. As Ted Wilson said, the crisis today is different than the flooding of 1983. I mean, obviously. But if you think about it, the distinction is really only in the pace of the catastrophe. 
They both have consequences that are dangerous and terrifying. And we've been wondering the same thing Wilson has. Could the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints do something again to help? It's a global church, of course, but its headquarters and its roots are here. And one of the greatest concentrations of members can actually look out and see the lake. But sandbags aren't going to solve this disaster. So what can this church, or really any church, actually do? That's what we're talking about today with three members of the LDS Church. They're all with a group called the Mormon Environmental Stewardship Alliance. Ben Abbott is a professor of plant and wildlife science at Brigham Young University. He was part of a team of researchers from BYU that recently delivered a report about the future of the Great Salt Lake. Soren Simonson is an urban planner and architect. He's executive director of the Jordan River Commission. And Rachel Lauritsen is a schoolteacher. One of the things Ben Abbott reminded us at the beginning of this conversation is that the church, capital C, church, is more than leaders and administrators. There's the institutional church, but that's really only a part of what we would call the body of Christ, all mm. of the members and, and friends. And I think that we have an intense responsibility for practical and moral reasons to take care of Great Salt Lake. You know, thinking about church history, this is kind of the third time that we've tried to build Zion. First, Independence, Missouri, then Nauvoo, Illinois, now um, the Wasatch Front in, in Utah. And the first two attempts to build Zion, we failed not because of ourselves, but because of persecution and getting driven out of those places. But, but if we are serious about our desire to build a harmonious community where there are no poor, where we are living in line with God's laws, including the ecological laws that govern this whole earth, then we've got to succeed here. And the decline of Great Salt Lake is a, a, is a threat to our entire way of life. I think, I think we still haven't come to grips with that. We'll come back to the idea of how the threat of Great Salt Lake is also a threat to the Zion Project. We'll come back to that idea because I'm interested in spending more time with that. But Soren Simonson, to, to the larger question of what's the church's role here and responsibility to the lake? I think for me, what is so foundational, and this is place-based, you know, kind of connection, no matter where Latter-day Saints are within the world, but of course, because we have such a large population of Latter-day Saints around the Great Salt Lake, it's particularly applicable to us. And um, from a theological perspective, the commandment, the direction that was given to our first parents, Adam and Eve, along with multiplying and, and procreating and creating this human family was to replenish the earth. And that is repeated in the Pearl of Great Price in both the books of Abraham and Moses, and is also repeated at great length and with much greater detail in the temple ceremony. So when we think about what's happening to the Great Salt Lake, it's being diminished, not replenished. For me, that's so foundational to who we are as Latter-day Saints to be thinking about what are all the ways that we replenish the earth and replenish the systems that sustain life. But Rachel, it's a global church. Um, there are a lot of environmental disasters throughout the world that uh, any church could attend to. 
Does the does the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints have a particular responsibility to this this lake because of its relationship with it, because of its connection to it? I think there is a responsibility because we have entered into a relationship with it, and I think it is similar to responsibility that each of us has to the places where we live. And we rely on the natural world around us to support our lives, our livelihood, our well-being. And so inherently there is some responsibility. And because we have located this place as an oasis, a place of Zion, that brings a greater meaning, I think, to the that responsibility but I think it's inherent in everything that we do. So I think when we look at the creation stories and we look at the mandate to not only till the earth, but to take care of it, we, we are given so much. We rely on this earth. And so we have a responsibility through reciprocity to support the systems that support us. And if we have claimed a place and we are, are using it to build up Zion or to build up just our livelihoods and a place of beauty that people want to come to, then yes, we, we all have that responsibility. And so as a church community and to some degree as an institution, we do have a responsibility to maintain that and to help it to flourish. Well, and I, I really agree with what Rachel said. And th- the fact is the loss of salt lakes around the world is a global issue. Hmm. And so in, in, in that way, how we respond to the decline of Great Salt Lake could be a model that the institutional church and the membership around the world could export to help address these issues. Because the loss of saline lakes is not just one more environmental issue in a long list. Mm-hmm. It has been described as, for example, the loss of the Aral Sea, the largest ecological catastrophe in the history of humankind. 95% loss of a major inland sea, a devastation all around it. And, and nobody has cracked the code. You know, if you look at what quote-unquote success looks like, it usually is a slowing of the decline of the lake, like we see in the, of the Dead Sea in, um, in Israel, or in, in, in at one extreme mono lake where the levels have stabilized. But nobody has succeeded in reversing the decline of one of these major saline lakes. And so I think we need to ask ourselves as a people, are we up to this task? Um, we're here for a reason, I believe. And this is an opportunity to demonstrate how we can come together and solve a problem that can only be solved together. What are you all hearing in ward houses, your particular congregations, about about Great Salt Lake in particular, if you are hearing anything at all? Um, or, and, and maybe, maybe I'll ask also, are, are you really hearing anything about the drought or water or climate change. It, it, I guess the question is, is this a conversation that's, that, that's being played out in lessons, um, you know, through the pulpit, um, just conversations in, 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 your, in your churches? What are, you, what are you hearing, if anything? Greg, uh, sorry, Ben Abbott, you start. You know, maybe it's, it's the fact that uh, many of us have uh, agricultural roots, but I feel like one of the most common things, you know, if you were to do a textual analysis of all the LDS prayers given, the word moisture would would be very large, 
right? It's going to be huh. heard almost every week. Thank you for the moisture, or please bless us with moisture to get out of the drought. So this this certainly is at the forefront of of our worship and occasionally our practice. You know, um, let me take prayer out of it, though. Yeah, take that part out. Aside from what you're hearing, a reference in the prayer, what else are you hearing, if anything? Um, You know, I think that it's really meaningful that just in the past six months, we have received four major communications from, from the church on this topic, right? Starting last summer with the statement about the importance of water conservation. The church doesn't make many public facing mm-hmm. official announcements. That was one of them. Um, and then Gerald Cosse's, the presiding bishop of the church, uh, his talk during general conference, really not mincing words, talking about our sacred responsibility to care for the earth and be wise stewards. Um, and then uh, bishop uh, Budge, another one of the presiding bishops, talking at the Sustainable Development Goals uh, Conference. And I thought there was a fourth one, but I'm only pulling up those three in my mind right now. So I actually think that the messaging is is quite clear from the church leadership about what we should do. But then there's the broader discussion that's going on in the ward houses. And, and I do hear I, I hear discussions. This has been brought up as far as do we need to change our outdoor water use? But I, I feel like we we need to be more engaged in doing more. So the messaging is there. Is it translating again into conversations among the rank and file? Um, Soren Simonson, what are you hearing? Yeah, you know, I think the messages that Ben has uh, referenced are very broad. They're some of them are outward facing. The talk that was given by Bishop Budge at the conference at Utah Valley University and the statement by the church, I think those were broadcast, you know, broadly through the media. Um, I I don't know if they've necessarily been internalized. Certainly, Bishop Kaze's talk at General Conference was. It was a very general talk, um, applicable to situations um, that pertain to saints all over the world. Um, I will say that um, there are not many other than me and my ward that are talking about the Great Salt Lake and about climate change. I've referenced it in talks I've given and lessons I've taught, um, both to adults and to youth. I often have many people come up afterwards. I, I love what you're saying. I love how you're saying it. I wish we talked about it more. And so I think that's one of the challenges. It's not environmental stewardship and conservation broadly or climate change and water conservation specifically are not parts of standard curriculum. And you really, I think, have to have very perceptive instructors, teachers, speakers to pick up on nuances of of these infrequent uh, statements that are made by the church or talks that are given and to understand how to apply them. I would love to see our Relief Society and priesthood quorums in our ward talk about Bishop Kaze's talk. Um, We have a handful of Sundays between general conferences, I think five of them, to give talks, or or, uh, maybe 10 of them, where those those lessons are given. Um, And I'd love to see that picked up as one, but I don't know how many um, wards or congregations will actually use that as their curriculum for a Sunday lesson. Rachel, what are you hearing? Well, like Soren, I would 
I'm the resident environmentalist in my ward, and <laughs> I do have conversations with people. Um, and I actually have had several with my bishop. We have a good relationship, and he's been very supportive and open. Um, they're looking at exploring ways to incorporate more general environmental changes within the ward practice, either with supplies or sorts of activities. But it is something that I think the general membership is not used to speaking about in terms of this is a serious issue that we need to address. And I think there's some lingering sense of making sure that we have a traditional appearance. So with our lawns, for example, at the churches, and we want them to look beautiful and inviting. And so depending on the leadership, the, the ward and stake leadership, there may or may not be a focus on watering less or investing in some drought tolerant native species to plant. And so I think there's still some trying to wrap our arms around what this means, especially since Bishop Kaze's talk, actually. I've, I have heard a lot of different approaches to, um, to these environmental issues and specifically to the Great Salt Lake because it is right here and it's very immediate. And, but I think people are still figuring out how that integrates with our theology. And I, I believe that it does rather deeply, but we've just not been in the practice of, of talking about that. Let me share two very concrete examples. Many people know me from the time that I served on the city council in Salt Lake. And I remember um, we were having some issues around a couple church buildings in our stake um, that were having parking problems. And um, one of the approaches was, well, let's purchase some adjacent uh, homes and tear them down and expand the parking lots. Now, in Salt Lake City, nobody lives more than about two or three blocks from their church. And so the idea of tearing down homes to expand a parking lot so that people can drive two or three blocks was just such um, an unusual request to me as a city planner and a, an architect and designer. And so I said, well, I'm going to write a letter. And I, I wrote a letter. We tracked down the names of all of the bishops and stake presidents in the district that I represented. And I sent a letter to them. And I said, why don't you encourage from the pulpit people to walk to church and we'll solve all of the parking problems. There were a couple of bishops that embraced it and they said, this is a great idea. And there were others that kind of scoffed and said, we can't tell our congregation, our, our ward members to walk to church. And I said, well, there are two letters from the First Presidency, one in 1974 and one in 1979, that did just that. Mm -hmm. You know, this was in the height of the energy crisis in the 1970s. And I said, certainly air quality and climate change are a crisis of our time that would warrant walking to church. Um, another more recent experience I had in the current ward congregation that I'm in, um, I suggested that we have recycling waste cans around the church. And I remember a response from one of our leaders in our ward who said, well, we'll do that when we're told by church leaders to do it. And I shared a website that the church had recently published that said, we encourage, you know, communities and saints to support recycling programs in their community. And I said, this sounds pretty clear to me that the church is recommending that we recycle and we should be doing that in our ward meeting houses. And they came back again and said, well, when we get that direction from the church directly to us, then mm -hmm. we'll explore implementing it. And, you know, so I, for me, this is kind of, 
in line with that. We see what's happening to the lake, and I think people are waiting for some signal to say it's okay to talk about it because our ward lawns are green, our home lawns are green in my neighborhood, um, and people just aren't talking about it, and, and yet it's a, a huge crisis for our region. Is part of that reluctance of some members that you're referring to, and I'm not sure if you're sort of dancing around this or not, but the political. Um, I wonder if part of the nature of the reluctance, even of church leaders being more explicit in, when, in, in talking about actual concrete solutions or or you know providing guidance or um, recommendations to to church members is that these issues have taken on a, a, a sort of political dimension climate change or at least what we do about climate change is ideological now um, is that part of the sort of the filter here um, that's, yes. that's, that's playing out, are you saying? Absolutely. That is definitely part of it. And a lot of it has to do with the larger political discourse across the United States, where that the environmental movement got associated with the left. And so anybody who had ideology with the right started distancing from that. And I think, especially in the last few years, where we've seen a really intensification of that polarized divide, you're seeing more extreme versions of that. And I think another example, specifically with the church, is uh, during COVID, hmm. when the church came out and said, okay, we're stopping meetings. We're gonna ask you to wear masks. We're really encouraging you to get your vaccine. Look, our president, our prophet did it. And there were a, a significant number of people who were right-leaning who said, well, actually that's not revelation. Because it didn't ally with how they were informing their religion with some of these other ideologies that were in, in play. So I, I think it gets to be tricky for the church as an institution find that balance, especially when you have this conservatism that says environmentalism is liberal scariness, and we don't want to be part of that because it's wrong. Mm. You know, I, I think that, that that political overlay has interacted in, in unexpected ways on this issue because the decline of Great Salt Lake is is not primarily caused by climate, right? Our, our current estimates are only five to 15% yeah. of the decline of the lake is attributable to long-term decreases in precipitation and increases in evaporation. But, but I actually saw that some uh, local leaders, not in the church, but political leaders that were leaning into the climate change story, you know, saying, oh, this isn't about water overuse. It's not what we're doing. This is really about emissions from China uh, affecting the, the the climate system, and there was even a um, a peer reviewed debate going back and forth, um, demonstrating no, this is um, both in the Great Salt Lake Basin and these endorheic basins all around the world caused by local water overuse. So I think it's it's human nature, hmm. right? When something starts going wrong, we look for somebody else to blame, and you can see that in in real time, the divide between urban areas that are saying, oh, all the change has to be agricultural, the agricultural areas saying, yeah. oh, you can't touch this, it's got to stay in place. So we've got, hopefully, if we take our religion seriously, it c causes us to interrogate our own intentions, our own behaviors, and we can ask, how can I contribute positively to a solution? That's Ben Abbott, also with us, Soren Simonson and Rachel Lauritsen. They're all board members of the advocacy group Mormon Environmental Stewardship Alliance. 
We'll take a break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Keep your KUER membership up to date with My KUER. It's an online portal for you to manage all aspects of your support. Update payment or contact information, increase your monthly donation, or just pitch in a little extra. You can view past donations, print a tax receipt, and reach out to us about your account by sending us a message. Log in or create an account today at KUER.org slash MyKUER. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're asking, what exactly is the responsibility of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to the Great Salt Lake, which, of course, is in crisis? We've been talking about what this church or any church really could do to help. Is it about money or influence? And can members find guidance from their theology? With us is Ben Abbott, a professor of plant and wildlife science at Brigham Young University. Also Soren Simonson, executive director of the Jordan River Commission, and the educator Rachel Lauritsen. This question keeps coming to me as we're thinking about all of this. Like, what are they supposed to do, the church? What are they supposed to do? Um, And that gets us to two things I wanted to ask you about, resources and people in regards to what the church should or could do, having the singular relationship to Utah and the Salt Lake Valley and, and connection to Great Salt Lake. Let's talk first about resources. And I, I don't, don't want to be crass, but let's talk about money. Um, a few years ago, of course, it was revealed the church had amassed this huge investment portfolio of at least $100 billion. So we know they have money that they could spend. Church leaders have even talked about the fact that that's for uh, some, some potential rainy day fund. It, it, people are wondering, without sort of invoking the pun of brain, that <laughs> this, is, this is a perfect time for that. So, so I guess that's the question. The church could spend a lot of money on this, um, and it wouldn't have really any effect on the day-to-day operations of the church. I'm, 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 and I'm saying a lot of money. What do you all think about that, that argument? Should it spend not some of that money, but, and not all of that money, but a lot of that money? Soren Simonson, what do you think? Well, I've got um, mixed feelings about – And what would they do with it? <laughs> right. And what would they do with that money right? too, right? I, so, yeah, I mean, so, yeah. the state has already contributed uh, a lot of money <laughs> – specifically for acquiring shares of water to help replenish the lake. Perhaps the church could add to that in some ways, but you know the, the, the political mechanisms, which are much broader than the church and focused on our specific area. I mean, the church's fund is global, and I think they would be equally criticized if they invested a lot of that money locally, even though there is a large Latter-day Saint population here, and arguably a lot of that those resources are coming from Utah and, and the mountain states. You think they'd be criticized if they spend a billion dollars somehow on like, hey, trust fund, here's a billion dollars. <laughs> Do you think they'd be criticized? I think there are people that will always criticize the church no matter what they do. <laughs> okay. But let me say this. Um, the church – this is not necessarily transparent. There are – you know, every drop of water above the earth, on the earth, under the earth – 
in, in the state of Utah is, is controlled by some entity. Somebody has a right to claim that water for beneficial use. And the church, by virtue of being an enormous property owner, not only of ecclesiastical facilities, all the churches and temples throughout the state, real estate holdings, but especially farmland, the church is an enormous property owner, the institution of the church. And so there's a lot of water tied up, both the water that's used to irrigate lawns and landscapes and farms and things like that, but a lot of, lot of water rights that are held. And I think more appropriate to this particular situation would be to look at ways that water that's not being used effectively and efficiently, the church could take advantage of recent changes in state law and allow some of that water, maybe for an extended period of time, some of that water could go back into the natural systems. I think that's probably the most important way that the church as an institution could have a very direct impact on what's happening with the Great Salt Lake. But along with that... Not so much the money. Not so much the money. I mean, money may be necessary hmm. to acquire water rights, but I think the church has a vested interest in the long-term health and vitality of this larger ecosystem. And they don't have to buy water from themselves or put water into a fund if they have water shares that could be contributed short-term or long-term to help with the replenishing of the lake. Um, I know in some investigative work that's been done, they've uh, accounted for maybe seventy-five to 80,000 acre-feet of water, but I suspect that that yeah. number is much, much higher. Well, before – I don't want to move off the money yet. Uh, so, Ben Abbott, what do you think? Is, is, is Soren right? Is, look, yes, the church has a lot of money, but that's not where we should be focusing is on the money. Well, until just a few months ago, it wasn't clear what to put the money toward, Yeah, right? There wasn't a fund. Now there is. Mm -hmm. And actually, one of the really encouraging innovations is now there's the Great Salt Lake Water Trust, where individuals and organizations can bring financial resources to bear. So there now is an outlet where individual members, the institutional church, other organizations that are interested in continued survival along yeah. the Wasatch Front, which will require restoring Great Salt Lake, can, can put their their resources. Um, but the, the broader question for me is this idea of signaling and priorities. Mm. And the church's holdings, let's, let's take uh, the number that Soren cited or even increase it some to 100,000 acre feet. That's only going to get us 10% of the way yeah. toward the additional million acre feet we need to right. begin refilling the lake. And so the, the church's Physical holdings are one thing, but imagine the, the ripple effect that that's going to have, not only in the LDS community, but beyond, saying we are in this together. We're going to use all the resources that we have. And again, that's, that's the only way we're, we're going to solve this problem is coming together and everybody doing their part. Well, let's talk about the, the I guess, the theological or the, the doctrinal part of all of this. I'm really interested in what you find in the church doctrine or philosophy that speaks to, in in particular, helping to preserve Great Salt Lake. Um, Rachel, I'll start with you. What's the relationship between protecting the planet or protecting a lake like that and the plan of salvation? Well, there's a number of things, I think, that come to bear on that. Um, one that comes to mind is that all things were created spiritually before they were created physically. They all have a purpose, and they are all 
a creation of God. There's a children's song that we um, was actually a formative song for me when I was a child called My Heavenly Father Loves Me. And it talks about the beauties of nature and this world. And this it finishes off with saying that that God gave me my my life, my mind, my heart. And I thank him reverently for this, for all of his creations of which I'm a part. And because of all of this, I know that God loves me. And I think there's some really deep and beautiful theological implications in there. And that's not just a song. This is echoed and repeated in our our Genesis narratives, wherever they show up, both in the Old Testament and in our other scriptures in the temple, as Soren mentioned, as well as in things like the word of wisdom. It talks about using things with wisdom and thanksgiving. It talks about using, eating meat sparingly and all of these things so that we have a sense of reverence and respect for the gifts that God has given us and that we reciprocate and replenish the things that we take and that we don't take more than we need. You can interpret that a number of different ways, but and it shows up time and time again. So I think we just need to highlight that and really develop that love of nature, that love of creation, because as others have said, if we do not love something, we won't protect it. Ben Abbott, one of the things you've talked about is this idea within um, Mormon belief that the earth is inspirited. The earth doesn't fail. It isn't the earth's fault here. Could you explain what you mean there and how, how how this applies? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the decline of Great Salt Lake and water scarcity generally is a human problem, not an issue with the natural world. And our, our doctrine is really clear on this point. So we have a scripture in section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants that says, the earth abides a celestial law. And for us, a celestial law is the highest level. That's what we're attaining to, to be. Mm-hmm. And so rather than viewing the the earth as a fallen or flawed thing that we need to come in and through brute force correct or redeem we actually see the earth as a model and if if we are not getting our needs met our first question needs to be how can we change our behaviors how can our society change rather than trying to force the environment to conform to our expectations and if we followed that very simple uh, earth as a model of God's laws pattern, we wouldn't be in this situation. I, I feel like the the cause of all of these water disorder symptoms is an improper relationship with the world around us. And of course, as, as Rachel's mentioned, with each other. Hmm. Will you say more about, you also mentioned another section from the Doctrine and Covenants, 104, I think it was. Um, yeah, a reference to using the gifts from God because you think this is also um, an important sort of scripture for what we're talking about. Absolutely, so section one hundred four. If I were to, to say, where can you find the most complete s- summary of of um, restored gospel theology regarding the environment, it would be in section one hundred four. Hmm. Um, it, it's very it's very clear. It's also widely misinterpreted and even misquoted. There's a phrase in 104 that says, there is enough and to spare, referring to the resources of the earth. And some people have used this as a justification um, of a belief that we should never worry 
right? The environmentalists are always going to be complaining about something. The Lord won't allow us to run out. Um, but the, if, you, if you engage seriously with the scripture, it's, it's saying the opposite thing, that there will be enough and to spare if we follow God's laws. And the very first thing that we're supposed to do with the gifts of the earth is care for the poor and vulnerable. And in fact, in that scripture, it's talking not only about the poor and vulnerable among humans, but all of God's creation, including animals and plants and ecosystem types. And so if we use the gifts of God, the, uh, the amazing creation around us to care for those in need, then there will be enough and to spare. If, on the other hand, we overconsume and use principles of extortion and forcing uh, unrighteous dominion, then we, we have examples through all of our scriptures of how bad that turns out. We're going to lose Soren Simonson here in a moment, so I want to ask him a question finally. Um, one of the things you've talked about is that the church should get out there and be an advocate for the lake, that the church should speak out and get engaged. What does that look like? I think that, again, a lot of what's coming from the church is very general around stewardship and environmental issues. And because the Great Salt Lake, in the condition it's in right now, all of the voices that can contribute to this idea that we live in the second driest state in the nation in terms of precipitation, we have the highest water consumption, and something's got to (laughs) give. And I think what's got to give is the giving that's coming from all of the voices that have a platform to say, we have to change our relationship with water if we're going to sustain a society that's worth living in here. And I think the church can play a really significant voice, and I think that voice can be a really critical one to encourage saints to conserve, 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 conserve. Whether you're farming, whether you're irrigating your landscape around your home or your business, whatever it is, let's find ways to conserve because it's that conservation mindset that will reduce the demand on the resources that are so scarce right now. And I think that messaging is a really critical role that the church can play because it has such a large voice and a place in the community. That's Soren Simonson, also with us, Ben Abbott and Rachel Lauritsen. They're all board members of the advocacy group Mormon Environmental Stewardship Alliance. We'll take another break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. KUER is available via radio through a network of transmitters and translators across Utah. We are also available to you beyond the dial. Stream us on your computer, put us in your pocket with the KUER mobile app, subscribe to our podcasts, and listen to us at home on your smart speaker. Use our station finder for your nearest signal and explore more ways to stay connected to NPR Utah at KUER.org slash listen. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about the relationship between the LDS Church and the Great Salt Lake and what they should or could do to help save it. We have with us Ben Abbott, Soren Simonson, and Rachel Lauritsen. Back now to the conversation. Last summer, Governor Cox said that he wanted to or was having conversations with leaders of the church about about 
Great Salt Lake, about water. Uh, um, so far, we don't know what's come from that, I guess. Um, we haven't heard any particular details. And I'm wondering, do you think um, – are church leaders more involved than we know? And do you think something is in the works or that they may be thinking about something that just hasn't come out yet? What, what, what's your sense of all of that? Ben Abbott? Yeah, you know, there, there are these two um, scriptural commandments that we've been given about doing good. And both of them come, come from Jesus' parables. But your right hand shouldn't even know what your left hand is doing, right? <laughs> like do, do good quietly. Yeah. Don't brag about it. On the other hand, don't put your candle under a bushel. And, and, and we also need to lead by example and not be ashamed of the good that we are doing. So I'm hopeful that we can feel more comfortable Again, not not bragging about ourselves, but realizing these are not political issues. These are issues that are central to the practice of our faith. And if if we're not allowing ourselves to talk about them publicly, then that probably is a sign that we have put our politics before our our belief rather than the other way around. I wanted to come back with something you were referring to at the start of the conversation about the environmental health of, of Great Salt Lake or the environment just here in the headquarters of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. How you say the health of that is, critical, is a critical part of what you've described as this Zion project, that yeah. it, it's critical to this whole project of, of what the church thinks of as restoration. Yeah. Say something about that, would you? Yeah, I, th- I think that this is this is really important. Um, the the earth has a spirit. The earth has awareness. We we hear the earth speak in Latter Day Saint scripture, and the earth actually mourns for the wickedness of the people and says, um, you know, when when will this end? When will they begin treating each other in the way that that God has has commanded them to? And and I think that there, you know, you know, I'm I'm an ecologist by by training. That's that's what I study. Mm-hmm. And the one of the most famous ecologists of the 20th century was Barry Commoner, and he said if you pursue any environmental issue to its origin, it involves an unhealthy relationship not between humans and the environment, but in how humans are treating each other. And so I think we've got we've got this confirmation from from scripture in our kind of traditional way of knowing as well as from the science of global ecology that if the environment is having a problem that's a sign that we have a dysfunction at some level in our society. We need to take this seriously because we believe that our doctrine, our way of life leads to happiness and good outcomes. We need to make sure that that happens here um, regarding Great Salt Lake and our, our communities as a whole. Um, otherwise, I mean, it's, it isn't a matter of, of reputation or pride. For me, it's a matter of, of faith and commitment. Do we actually believe when we live in an appropriate way that it leads to good outcomes? The proof is in what happens over the next few years. What are you expecting, both of you? Finally, I guess from one of the things that you, you meant you had made this distinction, Ben Abbott, earlier, or maybe you can sort of you said that there's a difference anyway. 
between the institution and the people. Or maybe you're conflating the two. I'm not sure. But what are you expecting from the institution? And what are you expecting from the people? Because it sounds like a lot of what we've been talking about today is that they're – on paper, church leaders are saying things. You know, They're making statements. There's a reference to stewardship in a conference talk. There's a speech from um, the first presidency that people invoke sometimes, you know, President Oaks in Hawaii saying things that hey, climate change is real. And mm. but but does that again? Does that filter through to the people and the behavior of the, of the people? And to me, that seems like the critical question. So, yeah. what are you both finally yeah. expecting from that, Rachel? You go first. Well, I expect the church will continue to study and try to do the best it, it can. It has a long history of studying an issue, having a lot of meetings about it, and then quietly doing its thing. Not a lot of people realize that there are a number of church buildings, the newer church buildings, that basically meet or exceed lead standards, but they decided they didn't need to bother with for that certification and putting it on the building because that's not what it was about. About doing the right thing and finding ways to help. <laughs> and so it, it's a little bit of that, am I just quietly doing the right thing or am I putting my light on a candlestick? So that's what my hope is, is that they will really highlight the things that they have done, are doing, and are working on doing and make that very um, explicit as an example, as a teaching, and in action. So that that is my hope. Ben Abbott. You know, I'm really encouraged by a lot of, of recent changes that have happened where this this perception that only a certain political party can engage on environmental issues is, is falling apart. And um, John Curtis is my representative at, in, at the federal level in Congress. And he started the Conservative Climate Caucus last year. And it has since grown to be the second largest caucus on Capitol Hill um, as far as the number of, of members. And so th that makes me encouraged on the national scale here locally. We have seen LDS member-led initiatives like this fight to protect Utah Lake from a dramatic proposal to build these islands. And th those that's showing that we're, we're, we're kind of waking up to our responsibility and also our power. Right, the the influence because it comes across differently. We heard this in the Utah Lake battle from some of the the allies in the conservation community in in Salt Lake, where hey, if we if we say the same thing, but it's coming from this outsider voice, it doesn't carry the same weight, um, and that's unfortunate. But it's also the reality that we have right now. And again, getting back to this point of we've got to work together, so we'll get a lot of mileage as we start to feel more comfortable expressing our, our values and our beliefs and um, our, our responsibility to care for this land. And we, we've got to do it quick because nature doesn't negotiate. And if, if we don't get enough water to the lake, we will suffer the consequences. And so we've got an opportunity right now to prevent much of the catastrophe. Um, and I, I've started saying, and a gallon of prevention is worth an acre foot of cure, <laughs> where we, <laughs> we, 
We can do this now the easy way. It's kind of like having a conversation with a teenager about finances. <laughs> you can do this the easy way or you can do this the hard way. Mm -hmm. But we're headed toward the hard way right now. Ben Abbott. He's a professor of plant and wildlife science at Brigham Young University, along with Soren Simonson, the executive director of the Jordan River Commission, and the educator Rachel Lauritsen. They're all board members of the advocacy group Mormon Environmental Stewardship Alliance. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter at Radio West. Our producers are Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Kerry Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Thank you.